Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The information depicted in this podcast is purely for informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional before making any changes to your lifestyle or routine. Hey everyone and welcome to the Boost Your Biology podcast. My name is Lucas and I'm the founder of Ergogenic Health. Together in this podcast series, we will go underground to explore cutting edge health and human performance insights that you simply cannot search on Google to help you upgrade your existence. So without any further ado, let's jump into today's episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Boost Your Biology podcast. Today's special guest has made a huge impact in the health and fitness scene over the years. He holds a Bachelor of Health Science, University of Oregon, Psychology, Exercise Science. He's an IFBB pro bodybuilder. He's a multiple all-time world record holding powerlifter and the founder of the Vertical Diet. Stan Efforting, welcome to the show, man. Hey, thanks for having me, my friend. Appreciate it. So Stan, I'd love to start out my podcast by getting to know my guests a little bit better. Maybe I'd love to hear about your journey. How did you become so fascinated into, I guess, health and performance? Well, I tell you, it's the skinny kid story. I was a 98-pound wrestler in high school. Uh, I made it to 135 pounds as a freshman in college when I was 18 years old. I was uh, on the soccer soccer team. I had a soccer scholarship, and the coach told me I needed to bulk up and lift weights because I was too small to play soccer. And uh, so I started lifting weights. I just absolutely fell in love with it. Next thing you know, I'm looking at the magazines and having these delusions of grandeur that I was going to be a pro bodybuilder. And uh, I just, I gave up soccer and I started, I just dove headstrong into it. I bought Arnold Schwarzenegger's Encyclopedia Bodybuilding and I just went to the gym and started crushing myself. And, uh, you know, and then I started studying exercise science at the University of Oregon and, and working with, uh, working with athletes and working at gyms and becoming a personal trainer and just, you know, following that path. And um, as I was progressing through my, you know, competitive career, I, I could call it, I guess, after two years of training I competed in my first bodybuilding show I was 156 pounds it was uh wow. it was quite a long journey for me being a small kid and I learned a lot of lessons along the way from you know the education and the coaching and the uh being coached and collaborating with other athletes etc 
and after many, many, you know, and it's now been three decades, I've uh, uh, I've uh, been putting most of my effort into trying to help people navigate the same uh, road that that I took. We're fortunate now. Back then, we didn't have the internet, and so of course, the best advice was from the guy working behind the desk at Cole's Gym. <laughs> uh, now there's just so much fantastic content. If you can wade through it, there's just a phenomenal number of highly um, what would I say, academically credentialed individuals who also are passionate about and compete in a variety of uh, weight-related sports and, and performance. And uh, so I'm learning a lot. And I'm just, since I'm blessed to have this big audience, uh, I'm just trying to pass that message on to them. I've often said, I'm not a guru. I didn't make any of this stuff up. I can only give you my advice from my experience and then kind of uh, direct you to the resources that I think, uh, you know, can contribute to your success long-term. Yeah. And you're doing, you're doing a fantastic job at that. I mean, I've learned a lot from what you've shared over the years and yeah, really respect the way that you view like uh, nutrition, performance, building muscle and things like that. So I'd love to hear about like the evolution of Stan. Um, when you were younger, like, was there, were there certain people that you looked up to yourself and you learned the most from, or like, how did that evolve? Yeah, mostly bodybuilders for at least the first 10 years I was training because I was pretty undersized. Uh, and, you know, I followed the, the magazines of the time, you know, the weeder magazines of the time. I read all the articles until I found out they were just all regurgitated. It was the same article with different pictures <laughs> over and over again. Um, and a lot of what I got was really from scrolling. This will tell you how old I am, but scrolling through microfiche at the science library it was kind of the, the eight track tape of stereos at the time. <laughs> and, uh, some of the younger guys won't even recognize eight track tapes when I mention it, but, uh, back when Atari was still in existence and the internet did not exist. Uh, and I, I really always have tried to be as science-based as I can. And, and I, I did, you know, get a degree in, uh, a bachelor was in science and I, I studied a lot. Uh, and, but now, I mean, there's just so many people that are so much better at the science than me that, uh, I ended up with, when I wanted to release the vertical diet, uh, which is more than just a diet, it's, it's everything I've learned from all the, all the things I want my clients to pay attention to from sleep to nutrition, to training, to hydration, to uh, you know, blood testing and, and injury prevention and rehabilitation is just everything I found myself repeating to every single client that I took on over the years. I wanted to put it all into one book, but I ended up partnering with um, Damon, Dr. Damon McCune, who's a PhD RDN, who was director of dietetics for UNLV and was an exercise phys instructor there. And we sat down, we spent hundreds of hours and put, I think now over 500 references to articles, videos, and peer-reviewed published research in the book just to make sure that, that we were you know giving good information, but it does evolve over time. And so my vertical diet ebook, which originally came out some seven years ago with the, the first edition is now vertical diet uh, uh, 3.0 and the 4.0 is being released shortly because uh, wow. things change, you know, and, and the thing I like, I respect the most about some of the people that I follow in the industry uh, is that they often update and say, Hey, I used to believe this. And now the evidence suggests otherwise. And, and I like that, that people aren't dogmatic uh, about some of the things that they used to believe. Absolutely. I can um, definitely relate to that. I mean, I've always been someone who's tried not to get too fixated on one hypothesis or one particular pathway, things like that. Yeah. Um, 
So when it comes to the vertical diet stand, maybe because some of my listeners may not even know anything about the nutritional component, what, what that entails. Um, so maybe do you want to explain the approach to nutrition that encompasses like, you know, the vertical diet? Yeah. You know, I, it works on both ends because I competed in both bodybuilding and powerlifting for decades. Uh, some of the, I said, I've learned, uh, I wish I knew then what I know now. I've learned a lot of lessons along the way. When I used to diet for bodybuilding, I used to over restrict. I used to use uh, probably a, a real very few food items, probably a too large of a calorie deficit, do too much cardio. And I would end up losing a lot of muscle tissue, uh, suppressing hormones, uh, and just generally feeling horrible. And then on the flip side, when I would bulk up uh, to 300 pounds to be to power lift, uh, I, would, uh, uh, I would overeat. I would, I would do the dirty bulk and uh, I would get blood tests done. I've had over well over 150 blood tests throughout my career. And I would use those as a guide to see, you know, how, uh, you know, how all of this was affecting my body throughout the years. And I, there was just some, some general things that, that I think applies to most people on both ends of the spectrum. And so with the dietary pattern, I, I kind of wanted to build the foundation first and foremost, a healthy dietary pattern, which is, what everybody kind of references now, it's not an individual food necessarily. It's not a good food, bad food conversation. Um, and so I, I tried to build this foundation. And of course, you know, it goes right down the list. Calories are king. If you want to lose weight, you got to be in a deficit. You want to gain weight, you got to be in a surplus. Uh, and then after that, probably the second most important would be protein intake for retaining the muscle tissue, of course, in uh, conjunction with a resistance training program. Uh, and then micronutrients beyond that, because we know that, you know, the carbon and fat, but really for weight loss, um, you know, where you put them is a matter of personal preference. They don't seem to have a, a significant impact. They may on performance, however, which is why I do uh, make the recommendations I do in terms of carbohydrate consumptions for people who are highly active. Um, and then the micronutrients are important, getting sufficient potassium and calcium and magnesium and vitamin D. And I try and do food first on most of that. I've always said shakes are for fakes, eat steaks. That's, that's not an attack on supplement industry. It's just that I like to start. Uh, there's a hierarchy as far as I'm concerned on, on what is most important. And, and most whole foods have uh, a bevy of micronutrients that I think you can't get from a powder necessarily. Uh, and then I, you know, I try and build a diet based on that healthy foundation because through my experience working with bodybuilder, fitness, physique, bikini competitors since as far back as the early 90s, and all the way up to and including the, the Mr. and Miss Olympia level that I've worked with athletes, uh, along with NFL, UFC, you know, professional athletes, um, is that uh, uh, they tend to, in many cases, over-restrict and uh, they eat these diets that kind of start create problems for them, uh, the female triad you know, insufficient amounts of, of iron and calcium, and they end up with bone mineral density issues and amenorrhea, you know, cessation of menstrual period, and, uh, you know, just chronic calorie restriction. And so I, I try and intervene and address those problems. Unfortunately, most of the time, I, these people come to me after they're already experiencing that, and they've rebounded from a, a pretty terrible experience dieting. And so some of the recommendations I make are, are kind of based on my experience with with uh, those competitors. And then on the other side, the, the Hofgore Bjornsons and the Brian Shaws of the world who are, you know, just huge. Uh, and, and then when I was powerlifting, people who uh, 
get metabolic syndrome and end up with fatty liver disease and high cholesterol and high blood pressure and high blood sugar. Um, and so a lot of what I go into uh, in the vertical diet is to really mitigate damage. I've, I've, I've said that if you want to be healthy, don't compete first and foremost, because it, people will put themselves through, uh, you know, whatever to achieve their goals. And I, and so I, I, I try and understand that, that I still want them to, to achieve their goals, but I think there's a pathway that could be taken that can minimize some of the unnecessary uh, detrimental effects uh, on either extreme dieting or bulking on either end. And so mm. that's kind of what I try and break down. And I quickly move past information and into execution. What I mean by that is, is that I don't think most of the stuff I say is particularly groundbreaking uh, in the book. It, it gives you a good foundation for, you know, what you should follow. But I think being able to follow it, uh, what I say is compliance is the science. Once you have a plan in place, are you able to execute it? And I spend a lot of time focusing on that. People dieting, obviously, satiety is one of the huge issues. And uh, people bulking, you know, at the same time, being able to eat all the food that you need to eat. Uh, and then even the training component, it should be something that is uh, that you're able to comply with and isn't to, to such an extreme that you just give up. So I spent a lot of time in the book talking about little tips and tricks that help me uh, adhere to, you know, discipline, consistency, time management, and actually affecting the plan. Yeah, awesome. With um, some of the things you mentioned there, Stan, in regards to um, the fact that you've done many different blood tests over the years and you've experimented with different diets and things like that, what have you seen from your own experimentation, whether that be by pushing up the carbohydrates super, super high, uh, manipulating your fat intake, how is that reflected in your blood work? Well, first and foremost, I, I think what everybody should, what most of the, the, I think most qualified academics in the industry understand is that the vast majority of health benefits are realized simply from weight, uh, weight loss itself, uh, if you're overweight, and uh, maybe even some weight gain if you're underweight. I just had a woman yesterday who was averaging 130 pounds and uh, had a serious digestive problem, went down to 112, uh, and is now experiencing a host of medical problems as a result of that. So being underweight is a problem, being overweight is a problem, and normalizing that weight seems to remedy most of those problems. Uh, it's not a particular supplement per se, and, and maybe there are some nutrient deficiencies that, that exist, particularly in people who are dieting, you know, chronic dieting. Uh, that could be remedied simply by eating a little more food and a little, you know, broader, uh, uh, a little more diverse food choices. Uh, what I hate about the dieting industry, the guru industry for many years, going all the way back to as far as I can remember and started training people was that it was so restrictive. The guru diet would be egg whites, tilapia, uh, protein powder, broccoli, and maybe a dollop of peanut butter. And that was kind of that was the diet you'd get if you went to your typical guru, you know, bikini dieting coach. Uh, and I just think that it sets people up for failure. And I, I see it um, particularly in athletes who end up, as I mentioned, with the female triad, uh, you know, runners in particular end up with bone mineral density issues. And then that uh, they start to get shin splints and a host of other problems. So, you know, what I saw in my blood tests whenever I was extreme, uh, Weight gaining was the the elevated blood pressure, the uh, kidney and liver enzyme elevations, the um, 
the, uh, the hemoglobin hematocrit RBC elevations, all the things that you would expect to see, uh, the LDL elevations. Um, and those are the things that I kind of focus on most with the weight gainers, uh, the bulking, the people that are bulking. When I started working with Hofthor, he was 430, 440 pounds. The very first thing is, is I dieted him down to in the 390s, I, I tried to take 7% of his body weight off of him. Uh, because the research suggests that that, that can resolve about 95% of fatty liver. And he did have some metabolic syndrome uh, problems as a result of his weight. And so I, we, I, and I do encourage this of a lot of, uh, sorry, I do encourage this of a lot of people who gain uh, weight and end up with a problem is that they periodize their weight over the years. I did it somewhat um, mistakenly just by competing in both bodybuilding and powerlifting. I would bulk up the bodybuild and I would, you know, end up with some, some uh, metabolic syndrome problems. Then I would diet down or I'd bulk up the power lift and I would end up with some of those issues. Uh, and then I would diet down to bodybuild and the issues would be resolved uh, until the last month before the show, in which case I was, you know, going the other direction. I would start having low T, high, high cortisol, uh, you know, the things that you would expect to see in, in a, in a pre-contest bodybuilder. And so I, I do encourage all of my large, just like you would know, you would no longer try and stay at that stage weight, that bodybuilding, you know, five, seven, eight percent body fat for an extended period of time. It, it's not sustainable and you'd feel terrible. Your sex drive would be gone. Your testosterone would crash. You're, you know, you'd have a host of and you're, you're, you'd be so weak you know, trying to train in the gym and your energy levels would, would be terrible. Uh, so I, I encourage that the, they periodize their weight much the same way as a power lifter would not try and lift heavy all the time. You just end up overtraining. And so I, I, if you're not competing in powerlifting, you should lower your body weight um, in the quote unquote off season and, uh, you know, try and get healthy. And then there's some things you can do even in the absence of, of you know, calorie restriction or weight loss. Uh, a lot of those guys end up suffering from sleep apnea. So we get a CPAP, you know, it's, it's a life changing. And I don't make any money saying that, but it's, it's absolutely almost within a day or two life changing. And it can drop, you can bring your blood pressure down by up to 20 points. It's enormously significant uh, how high the blood pressure can raise with a severe apnea problem. Um, you're getting sufficient micronutrients uh, for blood pressure. In addition to the, the CPAP, getting adequate potassium, uh, has a huge impact. We see that in the, uh, the trials for the DASH diets. It's not just the sodium restrictions, the fact that they dramatically increase their fruit and vegetable consumption. They're getting more potassium, magnesium. Calcium also has a, an effect on lowering blood pressure. Uh, and then little things like the 10-minute walk that I've been talking about for almost 10 years now. Uh, <laughs> people think it's so funny, but you see Brian Shaw and Hofthor Bjornsson, after every single meal, they'll take a nice, brisk, 10 plus minute walk. And it, it definitely helps with postprandial glycemia. It definitely helps with digestion, uh, helps with blood pressure because high insulin uh, leads to high blood pressure, causes high blood pressure. You know all of this. So, um, yeah. I mean, that's, I'm just spitballing here, but it, it's the blood tests tell you a lot. They tell you a significant amount that you wouldn't otherwise be able to tell. Absolutely. Actually, if we look back a number of years ago, Stan, you were the one who actually influenced me to buy a um, treadmill desk. I bought one <laughs> at the very beginning of um, lockdown because my, my brother's like, 
he's like, oh, you know, you're not going to be able to survive. Like it's going to be a challenge. You're going to be sitting down all day working from your computer. And when I bought the treadmill desk, it was an absolute game changer. Um, yeah. I remember I just stripped body fat. I wore one of those um, continuous glucose monitors, the CGM devices, yeah. and I ran different experiments, post-meal walks and stuff. And an absolute game changer. Yeah, you know, and I'm no genius at this stuff. It, it, it seems pretty obvious, but I watch some videos uh, with some of the doctors that are probably the most prominent in, in, the, uh, in the diabetes uh, research. And that's kind of where I got the information from. They took type 1 diabetics, which I just recently, like within the last couple of months, had a type 1 diabetic reach out to me, said he couldn't eat carbs. And of course, he felt as though his training was suffering as a result. Um, and, and so I implemented carb consumption, but I would have him do his workouts immediately after eating. And we see in the research that even a type one diabetic can cut their uh, insulin intake in half or greater. Uh, these, this research was done on the step mill, 20 minutes of step mill following a meal because of the ability of your muscles to take up uh, glucose without the need of insulin, the glucose transporter. And so I strategically designed his resistance training program. Rather than having to do cardio after workout, I set up his training program, uh, push-pull legs, and then split, like push day was, you know, chest, shoulders, and triceps. So he would do chest after his morning meal, shoulders after his lunch meal, and, and triceps after his dinner meal. Uh, and maybe on days that he didn't, or times that he didn't actually lift weights, I would have him just sit on a recumbent bike and do a little spin, little 10 minute spin, but I like to break that up into 40, 40 or 50 seconds of under modest tension at a reasonable pace and then 10 or 15 seconds of rest and do that 10 times. I like more of a hit, but not, you know, not getting your heart rate super, super high because you just ate. I just want the muscles to work, particularly the legs. Um, but he had an enormous response from that. He could start consuming carbs. This is a type one diabetic and start consuming carbohydrates in a meal. And then felt as though his workouts were much, much better as a result of having carbs, because we know that the anaerobic uh, training thrives with, with uh, you know, glycogen usage. And uh, he couldn't have been happier. His, he was able to decrease his insulin, uh, didn't have to do any more cardio, because I got to be honest with you, most people that, that I talk to don't necessarily enjoy cardio. <laughs> and uh, particularly the steady state extended, you know, 40, 50 minutes on a treadmill or an elliptical, it's... It's not anything anybody does consistently, so I don't prescribe it to them because just because it's not sustainable. You know, I'm I'm focused on can I design a program that becomes part of your lifestyle that you enjoy, so you'll do it consistently, and that's you know kind of what I did with this guy, and he's he's never been happier as a result. You know, even in in addition to that, Stan, I remember reading a pretty cool research paper around um, the B vitamin because I know you talk about the emphasis on um, micronutrients and the importance of yeah. these minerals and things like that. There was one particular crazy study where they um, gave type 1 diabetics 16 milligrams of biotin, which is a B wow. vitamin, and it reduced their yeah. fasting glucose by 50%, which was insane. Wow. Well, I'd look into that as well. And you know how I'm a big fan of egg yolks. There's your biotin. <laughs> you know, that's what I hate about the egg white diet. It, it actually robs biotin from the diet. It, uh, it inhibits biotin, it'll steal biotin from the body. And uh, that affects your skin, hair, and nails, of course. And so you see these poor girls prepping for a competition with this brittle hair. And 
Uh, and then those diets also result in hypothyroidism. So next, you know, that hair starts falling out. It's tragic, you know, and it was somewhat isolated to the, to the fitness industry for a long time until social media became as popular as it has been. And now the general public, the soccer moms, start seeing these girls in the best shape of their life on stage and have no idea behind the scenes, the struggle that they're going through, physiological and psychological. It, it, it's devastating. The, the kinds of things that I hear and see and that people reach out to me for that they've experienced as a result of these uh, guru diets that I, I, I try to, to speak out against. So what about, I'm curious, Stan, like if somebody were to approach you and ask you about your opinion on like the vegan diet, for example, I'm sure you've had a number of athletes over the years that have like said, uh, hey, Stan, like help me prep for competition, but I'm vegan. Like what do you usually say in that situation? Well, you know, I have a chapter in my ebook on vegetarianism and veganism, and I've trained athletes, as you mentioned, up to and including, uh, you know, vegans in competition, bodybuilding, powerlifting and the like. And it can be done. My biggest concern is the adherence. It, it's, it is more difficult to comply with. Uh, I do have some reservations about um, pregnant mothers, nursing mothers, adolescents, um, you know, pubertal kids, I do have some serious concerns. It's hard enough to get them to, to eat a, a, a diverse, healthy diet anyhow. And then when you start eliminating some of the most uh, you know, bioavailable, nutrient-dense, you know, protein-dense foods, um, I know that, that, that the challenge with vegan is, is just by its very name, it's an animal rights organization. It's not necessarily a diet per se. Vegetarianism is much, much easier to comply with because like, you can get lacto-avo and they can have milk or eggs or you can get pescatarian and they can have fish. Uh, vegetarian is much, much easier, I think, to comply with. Uh, I, I'm a big believer. I have vegetables in my diet. I eat fruits and vegetables. I think it's important to get fiber in the diet. And I've been going to a whole conversation about its benefits for health and, and LDL and all that. Um, but uh, I don't discourage them. I, I, again, I, it goes into, can you comply with it? And it is a healthy vegan diet. Oftentimes, vegan and vegetarian folks will speak about uh, meat consumption, but they'll be talking about the standard American diet, which it's not necessarily the meat, it's everything that goes with it. Um, and we know that, that a lot of this research is confounded by the healthy user bias, uh, showing us that people who tend to eat more red meat also tend to smoke more, drink more, weigh more, and exercise less. Uh, but if you take healthy individuals, whether you're looking at uh, the Mormons, uh, whether you're looking at the study that was done on uh, whole foods, uh, omnivores versus whole foods, you know, vegetable based versus whole foods, meat based. We found equivalent outcomes and we consistently see that if sufficient fiber is being consumed and sufficient whole foods uh, and you comply with all the other things, as mentioned, your weight management and regular exercise. And, um, we see comparable outcomes. And so uh, I, I don't I don't discourage folks from doing so. And I, I try and guide them through uh, some of the more prominent vegan influencers have uh, similar recommendations in terms of supplements that are necessary. Uh, I would suggest if you're going to supplement a vegan diet uh, and get your, you know, obviously your B12, probably some um, uh, calcium, uh, creatine, you know, there's other things that you, you possibly should supplement if you're exclusively vegan. That by the same token, if you're eating a decent amount of red meat and you eat a healthy whole food diet, that probably where you might, where some might fall short is in fiber, 
you could just as easily go get some psyllium husk and that would be your supplement <laughs> you know put a little bit of that into it and and eat that daily as long as you're getting your 12 to 14 grams per thousand calories uh, i think you cover your bases there as well so as long as we're talking about a healthy dietary pattern, whether it be vegetable-based or omnivorous, you know, meat-based, uh, I think that both parties can thrive. We learned a lot recently, I think just in the last few years, um, from some of the research, uh, I'm trying to remember the labs uh, up in, uh, was it Stu, uh, Stu Phillips, uh, if I've got that correct, talking about the outcomes. We used to talk about protein quality, right? And we would emphasize the protein quality uh, that you have to, might have to eat a little more vegetable protein in order to get a sufficient amount because of the, the bioavailability, the absorbability of it, um, and maybe uh, mix and match some amino, some the amino complexes in protein so that you had a full amino acid balance. But <laughs> maybe 20, 30% more total protein uh, than you'd have to get from an animal source. Uh, but now we're seeing in terms of outcomes, actual studies on people who weightlift and what, uh, how much muscle do they accrue and strength. Uh, if you can satisfy the, the total amount and get sufficient leucine, um, then particularly with the supplements, whether it's soy or pea or uh, some others, uh, which are certainly have enough leucine, enough protein content, you can build muscle. Uh, and then maintaining a calorie surplus can be a little more difficult potentially. Um, uh, so all of those things still apply and, and you can definitely do it. I, I would, I would argue that it would be more difficult and, and not, maybe not as enjoyable. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and that's kind of, that's kind of where I weigh in. Yeah. No, it makes, makes complete sense. As far as like, I know both you and I, we understand and recognize the importance of bioavailable nutrients found in different animal proteins. For example, I believe like eggs, uh, you know, one of the top most highly bioavailable um, sources of, of amino acids. When it comes to like organ meats, for example, um, you know, again, we know very rich in bioavailable vitamin A, copper, zinc, things like that. Do you think that, I mean, I'm curious to know, you think if in the next maybe five to 10 years, maybe we'll still uncover hidden compounds found within these animal proteins and animal um, organ meats, for example, like unknown peptides, unknown like compounds that we're only just now, you know, starting to uncover. <clears throat> I mean, it's possible because you're right. There has been a lot that we've discovered uh, about some of these, not just the, the vitamins and minerals we're aware of, but the cofactors uh, that help with absorption and and, uh, and help with preventing uh, overdosing. Like we saw uh, with the Linus Pauling era when he was just taking singular vitamins, uh, vitamin E, vitamin A, and you'd end up with toxicity levels uh, because there, there weren't uh, the cofactors that helped uh, manage you know, the toxic levels. I would suggest there are a couple of organ meats, liver in particular, uh, be cautious how much you consume iron and vitamin A in particular, uh, depending on, you know, the individual's uh, uh, propensity to accumulate those. Uh, men have a higher likelihood of accumulating high iron and high iron can suppress or can increase SHBG, which can then suppress free testosterone. And so that there's a kind of a daisy chain that can be created if, if and that's why the, I, I always go back to the blood test. I have no way of knowing, 
you know, I had a, you know, I had a female uh, high school softball player. I was working in Arizona uh, a few months ago and uh, her parents were saying that her performance has suffered recently and she's been tired and her, her uh, sprints times have gone down, et cetera, et cetera. And I asked if she got a blood test and they did. And sure enough, she was anemic and that's, you know, a very quick way to lose performance and energy. And so, you know, in her case, in a lot of women's cases, um, adding in red meat, combining it with a non-heme source. In this case, we threw in some spinach and a vitamin C. Uh, the three of them together seems to dramatically increase iron absorption. Uh, and then we avoid calcium in that meal. And so we had to break her meals up into her iron-heavy meal and then her uh, dairy-heavy meal. We would, we would alternate them throughout the day. Uh, and I'm telling you, it, it can take a while to get your iron levels back up. But your energy and your just your general sense of well-being, within a week, you're feeling a lot, lot better. And she was performing better, had more energy. And, and uh, so I, I don't know if I diverted into a, a singular case, but yes, um, I think there's lots that we're still learning, which is why I, I do like to have more diversity. I thought it was interesting when some of the academic community uh, asked me about my low FODMAP recommendations, because that does that does tend to... Uh, it is a restriction diet, but um, my my response is as compared to what you know. How many bikini competitors have you trained in your life? Because uh, a low FODMAP diet is really addressing a bigger problem uh, for these. A lot of these uh, female competitors, in particular, have chronically restricted their food choices for so long that their gut microbiome. Uh, we saw this in the Sonnenberg studies out of Stanford, that they had, they had different results. They would feed more fiber to people, and a third of them would thrive, and a third of them would have no change, and a third of them would actually get worse. And that third that gets worse is generally the people that I was uh, training for, for decades, is the ones who had over-restricted for a long period of time, and their gut microbiome diversity had significantly decreased. And so they can't respond very well to fiber. And then they get a guru coach that tells them to eat all these cruciferous vegetables and they end up with horrific uh, digestion issues. And so the low fat diet was a recommendation for them. But at the same time, I'm including a calcium source from dairy. I'm including fruits and I'm including red meat, which is often excluded from these diets. Um, and, uh, and including the, the egg yolk, which is often excluded from these diets. And so I thought I was more inclusive and the, the FODMAP recommendation gave them more choices uh, of other fruits and vegetables to eat that wouldn't cause as much uh, gas and bloating. Uh, and then obviously, you know, over, over the long term, you'd like to transition and reintroduce uh, and titrate those other uh, FODMAP foods back into the diet to get long-term uh, health benefits. So, Yeah, that's also a really interesting point, Stan, is like in relation to the microbiome. I mean, I'm someone who's always like keeping up to date with, the latest research around short-chain fatty acids, you know, beta-glucuronidase and uh, microbiota diversity, lipopolysaccharide, all this sort of stuff. Um, what are your thoughts then on the ultra-restrictive diet, the, the carnivore diet? Have you seen that work well for individuals and where do you think it goes wrong? Well, I think where we see it work well is in people who, in the Sonnenberg trial, responded poorly to vegetables because of their uh, lack of diversity, uh, or if they've got um, a dysbiosis, and, and those people uh, uh, are going to respond very well. And as we see with, um, was it um, 
Um, I was trying to think of uh, who's the young lady uh, that uh, that did the carnivore diet who had an enormous amount of health problems. Um, Peterson. Uh, oh, Michaela. Michaela Peterson. Peterson's daughter. Michaela. Yeah, Michaela Peterson. I mean, she had an extraordinary response. And Dr. Sean Baker's clientele, I mean, they their testimonials are remarkable. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of it, again, has to do with the weight loss. Remember, you know, and I, I, I was on Tom Bilyeu's podcast and I said that, that you know, even the McDonald's diet, 95% of health benefits are realized simply from weight loss itself, uh, irrespective of the diet. And I was just crucified. I mean, people just went crazy with the thought that, you know, you could eat McDonald's and be healthy. Well, if you lose weight, you know, it's not a long-term plan. The very thing that gets cut off when these things get reposted is I would never recommend the McDonald's diet. I said that seven years ago in rent, but you would be, it'd be, you'd be negligent not to recognize with the, the importance of weight loss, the, the primary importance of weight loss itself, irrespective of the method. And, you know, I, I authored a diet and I'm, I'm proud of it and I, I recommend it. Uh, but at the same time, I know that there's even a liquid diet outperforms any other diet for uh, diabetes remission uh, in, a, in the shortest period of time. You know, within a week, uh, uh, significant weight loss has to be associated with that generally. But uh, so there are, I say this about keto too, there are interventions uh, like in the emergency room, you know, you've got a, a bullet wound and a, you know, some, a scratch on your toe, which are you going to go after first? You know, you're, you're applying a tourniquet and you're, you know, uh, there are extreme interventions that are maybe necessary, uh, at one time that can get you significant results in a short period of time and dramatically decrease your exposure to, you know, adverse health effects. Long-term, how sustainable is it? And is that gut microbiome diversity being compromised to the point that, like you said, you're now you're limited with the short-chain fatty acid production and a host of other things that, that, uh, that we know a good diverse microbiome contributes to. Uh, part of that same study, the Sonnenberg study, uh, a subsequent study, they looked at fiber increase versus um, fermented foods. And you may have seen the results of that, showing that almost everyone eating the fermented foods had an increased uh, uh, diversity of their microbiome, whereas the fiber people were, it was dependent upon their condition going in. And so that would be a, a great, uh, that would be a great opportunity for, for people to, uh, put, uh, you know, fermented foods into their diet if they wanted to to start working towards some resolution. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. As far as like, I'm curious to know, Stan, um, and I'm sure this has happened to you before in regards to your opinion on a certain aspect of uh, nutrition, like, have you personally done a complete 180 degree flip where you've been like, I originally thought this and now like maybe five, 10 years later, you're like, actually, no, it's the opposite. Like, has that ever happened to you? Yeah. No, I tell you, I've had a similar, ever since I like way back in 1991, I won the Mr. Oregon and I was drinking milk and eating lean beef all the way up to the show. <laughs> I just went from 2% milk to 1% to skim. 
And I went from, you know, ribeyes to top sirloin to uh, grass-fed, you know, round uh, steaks. Just, and that's the same thing I do, did two years ago with Nadia Wyatt, who took third in the Miss Olympia. I just, I just started decreasing the fat content of her foods as I got closer to the show. Not that fats are unhealthy, but that it's just, I want to keep the carbs in for performance because as soon as their strength and their, their gym performance starts to decline, uh, then I lose muscle mass. And that's the goal of that, that competition. So, and then about 10 years ago, I wrote an article. Um, I don't know if it was called You Don't Grow in the Gym uh, or the 99% Rule, but I think it was called You Don't Grow in the Gym. And I talked about the fact that, uh, that you know, just generally speaking, just a 30-30-30, just split it in thirds. You get a third protein, a third fat, third carbs. Uh, so in terms of calories and macros, I've been pretty consistent. And then the diversity of foods. Probably the one thing that I went uh, whole hog against uh, some five, six years ago was uh, uh, seed oils, vegetable oils. Uh, but I said in the video that it, it, I have a bias because I'm allergic to them. I get severe gastric distress. I get, I get uh, really bad diarrhea. And uh, when I eat uh, seed oils, canola oil, I can't eat deep fried food. If somebody cooks my steak in a seed oil, uh, then within 30 minutes, I'm sprinting to the bathroom. It's, and I was, it's probably TMI, but I, I was more detailed in my video <laughs> if you ever want to watch it. Uh, but it's, and you know, uh, but then of course, some of the research started coming out showing that, uh, that it doesn't cause increased inflammation. And if you replace saturated fat with polyunsaturated fats, you can decrease LDL and your exposure to uh, long-term cardiovascular risk. The one challenge with that is that I don't think people are putting canola oil on their salad. I think that the, I know uh, two things, and this is exactly what I put in my book almost three years ago. This, uh, this is the, the final uh, uh, statement that we put in on, on vegetable oils in general um, is, is threefold. One, the cause of our obesity epidemic is uh, increased caloric intake. We know that. And that is from uh, the availability of ultra-processed, highly palatable ultra-processed foods uh, and our overconsumption of those. 70% of the seed oils we consume are in those ultra-processed foods. So if you wanted to demonize a particular ingredient, which I'm, I'm loath to do anymore because I, I, I've taken plenty of shots for it, <laughs> <laughs> claiming that canola oil is poison. It's a poison to me. <laughs> uh, but, you know, peanuts are a poison to some people, but I, I can't, you know, I can't suggest that nobody eats peanuts. Uh, there are, you know, different people respond to, to different food allergens. And if you have a food allergy, you should avoid that food. And if you have a food intolerance, then you should be careful about the dose uh, that you consume. And, uh, so that was probably the one thing that I went whole hog into following, uh, you know, Weston A. Price and Sally Fallon's uh, research. And um, as it turns out, they, they, you know, when I reached out to uh, Chris Masterjohn at the same time and tried to, to get some clarification on the uh, seed oil article that was written by Alan Flanagan, uh, very comprehensive research on it. And uh, they, they weren't able to, to defend their position. And, uh, you know, as being a science-based person, uh, I really wanted those things to be poisoned, and I, I, I really wanted what, you know, what I was allergic to to be bad for everyone. <laughs> but, but I settled in on the fact that that the vast majority of the seed oils that we're consuming aren't 
aren't salad dressings. They're deep fried, uh, you know, French fries. And, and, you know, what's interesting is Joey Munoz, uh, who, who you may know is one of Team BioLane's group, PhD in nutrition. Uh, he just recently posted about the reheated oils can cause inflammation. That is a concern, uh, depending on, you know, how long they're, they're kept or reheated or reused how many times. And so, and that's the bulk of what we're consuming. So uh, that's kind of my dance around what was by my most egregious uh, nutrition uh, faux pas. <laughs> Everything else, I mean, even the salt, I, I talked about adding salt for athletes. It's exactly what Lane Norton said, uh, that, that heavier people who sweat more and train more need more sodium. Uh, and as it turns out, uh, a more recent I just posted a more recent interview by one of the lead researchers in Europe on it. And he said the very exact same thing. There's two primary conditions. Larger athletes uh, are going to can and should be consuming more sodium. And um, people with orthostatic hypotension, which is something I also mentioned some six or seven years ago. And this is strictly from experience. You know, I, I wasn't keen on the research at the time, but how many uh, middle-aged or upper middle-aged women do you have to watch stand up from a leg press and hold on to something because they're dizzy and tell you that they're lightheaded before you start to figure out, hey, there's a problem here. You do a little research and discover it's low sodium. They're probably purposefully restricting salt because it's been demonized. Maybe they went on the DASH diet, but when they stand up from a seated position, this helps, happens with elderly people quite often. Um, they end up getting lightheaded. Their blood pressure can't change, can't adjust quickly enough. And the cure for that, for a great many of them, is to increase their sodium intake. And so I would tell my clients, hey, take 500 milligrams of sodium, a quarter teaspoon, a tiny little amount, right, uh, before your next workout. And sure enough, they would come in and work out and not have the dizzy spells. And so uh, I just saw that as a matter of experience long before all of these wars went on about uh, salt and its relationship to, uh, you know, in, in its accurate relationship to a potential elevation in, uh, in blood pressure, which can increase uh, cardiovascular uh, outcomes. So even that, there's a lot of nuance, but I was tagged as the guy who just more salt on everything. And that, that's never what I said. I said, if you're eating fast foods and packaged foods, you probably don't need more salt. But if you're on one of these you know, bikini bodybuilder figure physique diets, eating only a boiled chicken, then you can, you know, and you're training every day and sweating, then you absolutely should put more salt in. Or like in the case of Lane Johnson at Philadelphia Eagles, uh, you know, Dr. Sandra Godick from, um, from the Heat Institute uh, would sweat test these people and Lane was losing five grams of sodium an hour. Uh, you can't replace that in one bolus because you wouldn't be able to to tolerate it. Uh, you know, your stomach would reject it and you'd end up with diarrhea or what have you. But uh, so we had to start salting all of his meals and then using pre and post workout uh, sodium intake. And, and matter of fact, Sandra Godick is one of the preeminent researchers. She's a, a PhD in, in thermoregulation and hydration. She has a product called Levelin that has over a thousand milligrams of sodium that you consume post-workout, which is consistent with the recommendations of Dr. Andy Galpin and the ISSN. I don't know why medical professionals started conflating my recommendations with sedentary, obese, hypertensive individuals. I, I, I just, uh, it, it, it's foreign to me, but you can see it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a real sensitive issue. 
<laughs> oh yeah. Look, uh, when I when I first got into um, well, my brand is ergogenic health, and the term ergogenic, which I'm sure you're familiar with, is like yeah. anything that performance in the gym or like athletic performance. And the first ingredient that I researched was salt and how yeah. like salt affects performance. So like, right. So, so like salt's great. Creatine monohydrate's awesome. Like amino acids are, are, are integral to sports performance. But now like looking at it from the athletic performance angle, just like you said, athletes that are restrictive in their diets, like for example, you know, bikini athletes or those that are sweating a lot can benefit tremendously from increasing their salt intake. And, and some of the symptoms of low sodium, as you suggested, orthostatic hypotension, um, fatigue, muscle weakness, dizziness, um, yeah. absolutely incredibly important points. Yeah. And I suppose if there's a third thing, it would probably be saturated fats. I think people misconstrued my diet to be, you know, just red meat and so that bacon and butter was a free for all. And I've again, always recommended about 30% protein, about 30% fat and remainder carbs. I lower fats as I get close to competition, if it's a diet situation, but about, a, I, I recommend lean fats, uh, lean like top sirloin steak. And the, the saturated fat as a percentage of total calories of my diet has always been under 12, mostly under 12 or 10%, which is, you know, that's the recommendation by the American Heart Association. So that's been consistent as well, whether or not somebody misinterpreted my, uh, my, uh, uh, my fervor for uh, red meats to mean, you know, ribeyes and bacon. Uh, that's, that's, that's someone who simply hasn't read my diet. Matter of fact, there was a medical professional, someone I respect, in the industry was asked about my diet, who got on uh, Instagram and started complaining about those things. And I asked him, uh, I responded and I said, have you ever read the diet? And as it turns out, he had not. And he was making claims about the diet that simply didn't exist. And he goes, well, that's what I heard. And I'm like, wow, that's not terribly professional for a science-based individual to be making these kind of claims based on what you've heard. I'll be happy to send you a copy for free if you'd like to read it, but I've always recommended uh, fats to be under 30% of total calories and those fats to be less than a third saturated fat. So 30% times 30%, you're, you're down to, you know, 9% total saturated fat in the diet. If you follow my recommendations closely, which is consistent with, I think uh, some of the, the best recommendations. So, uh, those are probably the three areas which there's been some, I don't want to say confusion, but, uh, inconsistency. Yeah, makes sense. As far as I'm curious to know, Stan, like um, obviously you're continuously learning and adapting new principles and applying new methods, things like that. You know, in the next three to five years, what are you excited to see more research on? Like in what area of health or performance are you really excited to see more research on? Uh, I gotta, I gotta be honest with you. I, I don't know. I mean, I feel like so much of it has been covered so well. I think we've evolved from, uh, a lot of these over-restricted diets, whether, you know, carbs are bad or fat's bad or, or what have you, you know, keto, intermittent fasting, we've gone through that. I mean, I watched Dr. Peter Atia, uh, who I have a lot of respect for. He's certainly a brilliant individual, Stanford grad, Johns Hopkins oncology surgeon, uh, certainly a lot smaller, smarter than me, but I'm patient. I've been around for 30 years. I've, I've done keto diets many times. This isn't my first rodeo, right? And I've experienced all of the downsides from that, you know, the keto flu and the salt uh, uh, 
the uh, electrolyte uh, deficiencies and, and the muscle loss. And I've experienced that. And, you know, I, I watched him piss on keto sticks for three years and report the results. And sure enough, you know, they all come around. He's one of the most persistent of the group. I'll be honest with you. He, he's he's obsessed, obsessive. But now he eats carbs. Uh, Mike Mutzel, I was on his podcast years ago, and, and I, I think he's a fantastic resource and a very smart guy, master's in biochemistry, I believe. Uh, he was intermittent fasting, keto, uh, very focused on that. And has since started introducing carbohydrates. Paul Saladino, who has kind of gone off the deep end with the, the <laughs> vegetables are poison uh, mantra, but he was keto intermittent fasting. And I appeared on his podcast and said, look, here's an important reason to eat carbohydrates. If performance is your goal, if maintaining lean muscle mass and, and lifting, you know, being strong and, and uh, having fantastic workouts and, and maintaining testosterone levels and, and uh, avoiding, uh, you know, cortisol increases and sleep disturbances, if all those things are important to you, you'll start to incorporate a responsible carbohydrate intake. And like Mike Mutzel does around training now. And of course, uh, Paul Saladino introduces uh, uh, fruit and honey into his diet all of a sudden. And um, uh, probably the only holdout would be Dr. Sean Baker. And he's just a freak. I mean, he's six, five, 265 pounds. I mean, deadlifting 405 for 20 some reps. I mean, he's a freak. He's, he's definitely a freak. And I, I keep accusing him of, of, uh, clandestinely consuming carbohydrates that we're not aware of, but <laughs> he swears he doesn't. Uh, but I think that, I think we've gone through quite a bit of an evolution in the last five years. I mean, we've seen, We've seen the the keto thing play its course, I believe. The the, the Dr. Jason Fungs and the uh, you know the rest of them uh, who've written their books, and and it turns out that the science doesn't support uh, that the necessity of that kind of stream or the benefit that is beneficial in nature. And it may it may be easy to comply for some people, in which case the weight loss that they experience is going to result in improved health outcomes, and we see that even in high cholesterol. Um, keto diets that are low in fiber, if they lose weight, they improve all their blood markers. And so, you know, how can we suggest that that's not a healthy diet? Uh, but understanding that that's probably not long-term very easy to comply with is what my experience is. So I don't know, I, I've seen so much in the last five years, as have you, with our ears to the industry, reading all the research and watching all the professionals uh, and some of the not so professionals, to be honest with you, I've never wanted to be that, that type of individual. I, I made a post years ago to, to Lane Norton. I said, look, the, or just a general, it was a Twitter post. I said, the, the vertical diet does not cure cancer and won't prevent uh, um, uh, COVID. I said, somebody please tell Lane Norton so I don't end up on fuckery Friday. Uh, <laughs> so, I, I'm doing my best to navigate this, but at the end of the day, I'm a personal trainer. I'm a coach and I try and get all the information I can so I can provide my clients the best information. Um, I'm, I'm interested in outcomes and um, I'm, uh, I try and stay focused on that. And I guess that's where uh, to, to finally now get around to the original question, which is what do I hope we see happen in the next few years? Uh, I hope we, we are able to better improve our ability to help clients comply. And we know a lot already. Uh, this is where semaglutide is now the big rage because it helps people comply with a calorie deficit. It basically um, satiates you. It makes you not hungry. And we see extraordinary results from the research from long-term weight loss maintenance uh, in, in the placebo group at 3%, 2 to 3%, and in the uh, 
semaglutide group, 13, 15, 16% uh, results, which is just phenomenal. And I'm certainly not one to suggest there's anything wrong with that. If somebody needs a little help, I mean, you know, I'm spent my whole career in the in the performance enhancing drug side of, of competing in powerlifting and bodybuilding. So uh, I guess sometimes they say, if you're not cheating, you're not winning, right? <laughs> but uh, I'm all, I always recommend semaglutide to those people who are having a hard time complying with their diets. It's a, to me, it's a, kind of a no brainer, but I'd like to see some things maybe psychologically, uh, some of the things that we're already looking into. I have a whole section on satiety and all the different strategies that you can use. You know, we talk about increased whole food sources, increased high satiety foods like boiled potatoes and oranges, increased fluid consumption around meals. Um, you know, just anything you can do, uh, increase sleep just to decrease the ghrelin release and uh, all of those things that help people help make satiety a subconscious thing because willpower is, is not a good strategy. Uh, mm -hmm. to maintain for weight loss long-term. It's not, you're not lazy, you're not undisciplined. Uh, it's just damn near impossible to overcome your body's will and desire. And it will, it will do anything and everything it can. I, I have an eight-year-old and a 10-year-old and I know what it's like <laughs> to, to, for, you know, for, and that's what your body's like. It, it's just, it's like a child just trying to get what it wants and it will do anything to get what it wants. And I've dieted down to single digit body fat many times throughout my career. And I know what it's like to go to bed and just, just obsessively dream about food. And it's all you can think about when you're that, that hungry. And I would, I would picture the pizza going through the slow cook and the cheese boiling and the, and the pepperoni curling and browning at the end. I mean, it was, it was vivid that I would, I would sit there and it's all I would think about 24 seven, many, many times. And I, so I'm very empathetic, sympathetic, however you want to say it to uh, people who struggle with losing weight because of this, this uh, appetite. And, um, you know, I'd love to see semaglutide is probably the leading, uh, probably one of the most efficacious interventions that we currently have in that regard. And I would like to see more successful um, interventions, uh, you know, that, that could help people maintain weight loss long-term. Yeah. Some, uh, some great points there, Stan, and just wanted to say thank you so much for coming on the show. If my audience wants to connect with you and keep up to date with your information and resources, where can they connect with you? Everything's at stanefforting.com, stanefforting.com. Uh, my Instagram is at stanefforting and my YouTube, I have a bunch of those rhinos rants is also stanefforting. I have a nationwide meal prep company where I'm, uh, my company makes meals and ships them out to doorsteps all over the country. And then the Vertical Diet 3.0 ebook is the current um, evolution of all this information that we discussed today and much, much more. Fantastic. We'll make sure to leave those linked in the show notes, but uh, otherwise, Stan, it was a pleasure chatting, man. We'll, uh, we'll have to keep in touch. Thank you, brother. Appreciate you having me. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for joining in to today's episode. For in-depth show notes and lessons learned, visit nofilter.media forward slash boost your biology. This has been a No Filter Media production. Say what you want. 
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 